KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio In Depth. I'm Matt Leon. The U.S. is crying out for an infrastructure upgrade, and not just for fixing what's broken, but also bold initiatives that can really help transform American society. You'd actually be hard pressed to find a politician on either side of the aisle that doesn't think we need some level of infrastructure upgrade, yet we haven't been able to really get it done. So, how can we change that? How should we approach infrastructure, and what can we expect from the incoming administration of Joe Biden on this front? To talk about all this, we reached out to Harris Stein. He is the executive director of the Lindy Institute for Urban Innovation at Drexel University. Always a great conversation with him. Give a listen. So let's kind of start overall. How would you rate the state of American infrastructure? Let's take the broad look first. So I think the Society of American Civil Engineers gives it about a D minus. It's in pretty bad shape. You know, we've built out the country maybe 50 years ago and haven't really invested in any significant infrastructure investments since. And when I say 50 years ago, that's roughly the start of the uh, interstate highway program, right? Which is now kind of going, it's even older than that. It's the late 50s, so 60 years ago. We've pivoted away from those kind of big investments and those kind of big federal programs into kind of just stopgap band-aids. We were just talking about how can people be against infrastructure and, and how it gets so politicized, if you remember, the Obama administration had put a lot of money into new tunnels into Midtown Manhattan, to Manhattan, which, which sorely needs it. And then Christie comes in and just completely says, hey, we don't need that. So if we're stuck in that kind of decision making kind of realm, we're not going to necessarily make the big strategic investments we need to make. And to that point, you kind of alluded to a conversation we were having off the air, like, I think if we went across the ideological spectrum on its merits, you'd find very few people who don't believe that we need some significant infrastructure upgrade, repairs, imagination. And yet, to your point, we don't get it done because it becomes politicized so quickly. How much damage are we doing ourselves by scoring short-term political points at the cost of long-term development for everyone? I think you have just to look to some of the other developed countries like South Korea, Japan, Europe, the uh, Britain, the, the uh, uh, European Union, high-speed rail uh, has transformed transportation in those countries or those regions. And that's a place where we are significantly behind in terms of investing in any kind of uh, kind of modern kind of rail system. So I think that's a place where we're shooting ourselves in the foot because there's definite kind of economic implications, there's social implications, there's, there's uh, demographic, demographic implications. There's climate change implications. So we're, we're being, I think, short-sighted when we let the politics decide what gets built where as opposed to looking at a big strategic vision that has some kind of compelling kind of idea that, that drives it, like climate change. I want to put a pin in that and we'll come back to it. We talked about kind of overall state of infrastructure. When we look at the Philadelphia, the city of Philadelphia, the Philadelphia area, the Delaware Valley, would you put it right in line with kind of that D minus? Are we a little bit ahead, a little below? Where would you put it? Yeah, I mean, remember every so often pieces of I-95 fall down <laughs> into Port Richmond or wherever it is. I mean, that's not the kind of thing we want to open up the morning paper and see, right, in a in the richest country on earth that has the resources we have. And that's just one one piece of it. I know all, lots of old bridges you know, from colonial days also that are part of the network you know, need to be 
kind of reinforced. So uh, the Falls River Bridge, one of my favorites over the school when I come in from Mount Airy, all of these kind of great pieces of infrastructure that were built at a time of kind of really sort of pride in engineering and pride in kind of the future of the country are now kind of seen as uh, expendable. And uh, I think we, we take that attitude at our peril because you have to reinvest every generation in order to renew the country, physically at least, for, for the next generation. So where do we start? If you were putting a list of not individual prod projects, but broad ideas with infrastructure and how we make it better, how we get to where we need to be, and really, frankly, where we should be, where would you start? So kind of having a history degree as, as my first degree, I, I always think of like examples from the past and where we've done it well and, and use those as maybe models to inspire today's investments. So going all the way back to the canals, the federal government played a role in incentivizing the states to build the canal system. That was the, the rail and highway system of its day. Again, it's, it's looking kind of beyond the individual states and in in our federal system and what role can the Fed play. In that case, it was giving land away that states could then use for, to incentivize the private sector. Uh, same thing with the Transcontinental Railroad that Lincoln kind of uh, enabled. Uh, same kind of deal in terms of, of um, state land and but the vision to connect the country in that case California was kind of coming in online and both the economic natural resources social connectivity being a key piece not only of any modern kind of uh, country but but critical to the future kind of economic health of, of of the country at that time and then fast forward well actually the um, you think of the depression and you think of FDR and the New Deal and you think of projects like the TVA the Tennessee Valley Association, which brought electricity to uh, kind of a vast part of, kind of Appalachia and, and to this day is a major kind of source of econo- major economic engine in that area. You think of Hoover Dam and the kind of power that it unleashed kind of in the West, let alone all of the smaller projects the Civilian Conservation Corps did in terms of building kind of some of the parks and park structures that, that, we, that we still use to this day. Fast forward to the late 50s and Eisenhower creates the, the first a federal highway system. Having come back from Germany and seeing the Autobahn during World War II, it's like he, he thought he needed that to transport ammunition across country. But ultimately, it takes on you know, a, a very different meaning. But all of these were, were visionary investments at a time where leaders saw the value, and from both sides of the aisle, in investing in the future of America. So the question is, what's today's investment? That's really the, the, the hard one. And you wonder if it's if there, any of these are those big kind of moves that are truly transcontinental, or if it's a series of smaller moves that add up to a big one. That you know, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't have a shopping list at the moment, other than mass transit, public transportation, rail system. I mean, a lot of this just is kind of bringing them into the 21st century. I mean, we still have a, a, a 20th century regional rail system here in Philadelphia. We have a, a you know, SEPTA's chronically underfunded, but we have the bones of a great system. It, it really calls to mind the beginning of our conversations, what's the vision and, and what's the future of cities, right? If, if, if the futures of cities are partly clearing out because of post-COVID and people working remotely, how do we rethink the real estate, like we talked about Midtown Manhattan is doing, putting in potentially residential and some of the, the commercial buildings? And how do, the, how do these big infrastructure investments support that, incentivize it, and enable us to kind of meet the demands of climate change? I think those are some of the questions that I'm hoping Pete Buttigieg and others are 
going to be thinking about as they uh, as they start to come up with the, the infrastructure investment plan. I think I think there'll be a lot of money going into rebuilding highways, right? I mean, that's kind of easy. They need to be done. The federal highways are, are built with a 50-year obsolescence, so every 50 years they have to be rebuilt. My gripe is that do we really need to rebuild the highways in an era where electric cars and and uh, you know self-driving cars and even flying taxis are beginning to kind of come onto the horizon? Let's be a little more creative. But there's good, but that's shovel ready. We know that that's being done now. That money can be put there. But broadband across the country to all the rural areas as well as parts of kind of major cities, wind infrastructure, solar infrastructure. I think there's a whole host of of uh, kind of zero net zero energy type of infrastructure. I'd like to I'd like to somebody to articulate what's the vision? What does it mean for the future of America? Why is it important for us to invest in it? Uh, and I think that can begin to get people behind it. Back to our earlier conversation about you know how politics bogs this down. How do we get past this? Because I say most people before, and I think if you Really, I don't even think you'd have to go very deep in the argument. You'd see how this would benefit everybody. How do we get past the the politics bogging exactly. this down? And how hard is it in our current political environment? Well, I think in our current political environment, it's nearly impossible because it's become so zero-sum game. There really isn't much comedy in terms of, I mean, that in friendship, not funniness, comedy of, um, you know, of you know, esprit de corps working together. That said being a relative optimist, you know, Biden is a creature of the Senate, has relationships in the Senate, understands compromise, understands how to kind of strike a deal. There may be a moment here, in in large part necessitated by the crisis and the fact that we need to kind of build our way out of of this economic crisis, much like we've done the the previous ones, where he can get some traction with, uh, with the Republican Senate. The results in Georgia are going to be critical to that. In terms of it being, you know, the scale, it's going to be either real big or it's going to be tiny. But um, you know, we just saw this last aid package negotiated very quickly as uh, folks realized that uh, something had to be done by the end of the year. So I think we can do it. We've done it before, but we've got to come to the table as as Americans, not as members of different tribes. And right now, I think we're still very tribal. You mentioned earlier Pete Buttigieg, who was. The, the president-elect's nominee for secretary of transportation. What do you think about that pick? I would, you know, the top of his resume is mayor of South Bend, a smaller town, but still as mayor, you are responsible for a lot of things that would fall under the infrastructure, you know, thing. And I think this is also a very, obviously smart person, but a very ambitious person. So this is not somebody who is just going to come in and want to babysit a department. He is going to want to yeah. go bold, even if you look at it through the most cynical lens, for the benefit of his own political future. So what are your thoughts of him as this nominee? No, I'm a fan, definitely. I mean, he's, like you said, he's ambitious, he's smart, he's and he's he's determined. I mean, I, I think, like you said, he's not going to just sit there as a figure and he's going to do the work. He's going to understand what the issues are. He's going to grab those opportunities. You know, smart money and folks who, who I know who, who know folks in the administration feel that Buttigieg is a very significant pick and, and transportation itself is, is extremely important. That unlike the last recession, which was really centered around housing, where HUD became kind of the, the nucleus of the of, uh, of, of uh, of stimulus here transportation can attract a whole lot of different 
components like climate change, like kind of urban and rural development. And I mean, there's just so much that transportation connects and connects to that I think, again, depending on the Senate and the, and the, and the way that we can kind of work together or not, the opportunities could be pretty significant. It would be great if Buttigieg could, and I, I know he can, it's an individual, but, but, but gather the resources to, to come up with that vision. You know, why are we making this investment? Because, you know, ultimately, if, if you let people under, make choices about investments, they'll, they'll generally do rational, make rational choices. Like you're saying, nobody can be against it. But if it's purely about politics, then all bets are off. So navigating that's going to be critical at the get-go. And Buttigieg did seem to, for a 38-year-old, seem to be able to kind of, you know, stand up to the bullies, speak without shouting, kind of get his points across. He seems to have the skills to do that. We'll, uh, the, the, we'll, we'll see if he can actually come through with it. But um, I, I'm quite you know, excited at the possibilities. And speaking of possibilities, and we've kind of sprinkled these in through this conversation, there is the obvious thing when we talk about infrastructure, rebuilding bridges, you know, things that are literally crumbling. Take me through the imagination. What are some things that outside the box or even just that would really have a 21st century feel that, you know, not just would be cool, but you think are genuinely possible and could really be game changers? I mean, one of them I think is relatively easy to understand because it's basically creating a high-speed rail network, right? I mean, that's We've done the planning for it. We know what it's cost. We know where the alignments are. It's We know the benefits, particularly in the Northeast Corridor and certain dense parts of, of the country. There, the question is, what type of infrastructure are we putting in for the 21st century? Is it solely just rebuilding kind of in kind or are we rethinking kind of rail travel? The other one has to do with rethinking the role of the car in, in America. Now, we know from, from an industrial and economic point of view, the car has been central to America's sort of ascendancy, kind of as an industrial power. But we also know that the the single occupancy petroleum kind of driven automobile is on its way out, you know, whether it's 30 years, 50 years or 100 years, it ain't going to be here that much longer. Investment in new technologies and new forms of uh, connectivity, so that highways that now kind of have destroyed parts of cities like I-95 along the waterfront, could be rethought as different types of real estate or different types of lanes, if you will, for, for, for transit. I'm intrigued by kind of the flying taxis that Uber and others have been uh, kind of researching. And from some folks who are in the industry, it's not that far off that we might have these kind of Jetson-like uh, automatic flying taxis. It's, it's hard to imagine, right? But that means we don't need to be rebuilding our highways the way we're rebuilding them, right? So let's kind of, again, be strategic about it. So those are two pieces that are near and dear to my heart, kind of high-speed rail and kind of the future of, of roadway infrastructure in the United States. But you know, anything that has to do with, 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 with uh, reducing emissions, with, with kind of becoming carbon neutral and putting in the infrastructure that will support that is clearly you know, job one. Let's look at the other side if we remain in this stalemate where we're piecemealing things and we literally have to wait for a bridge to fall down to get the political will to repair it what are the concerns you know not just 
for the people that would be on the bridge when it falls. And I don't mean that flippantly, but I mean past that, like how could that yeah. kind of really start to take its toll on our society? Well, any of the great civilizations of the past have left kind of monuments to infrastructure. Think of the Roman aqueducts that to this day, you know, were built some 2,000 years ago, 1,500 years ago that are still standing. And they're, they're these kind of beautiful testaments to the not only the ingenuity of the Romans, but their ability to kind of connect resources to, uh, uh, to, to centers of, of, of civilization. We've got to keep doing that to stay current. It's not, it's, otherwise, we fall into almost a Soviet sort of patchwork of an old system. And that's, I don't think that's a vision of America that any of us are happy with. So is it either or? No. But we've got to, just like in your house, you, got to, you, have, a, you have a baby or two, it's, it's too small, you put in an addition, you upgrade your kitchen. You, I mean, as a, as a country, as a civilization, that's, that's who we are. We are innovation central. And the innovation economy really is at the leading edge of kind of the economic kind of drive of today. So how do, how do we merge that? And then the success we've had on the world stage with kind of innovation, a lot of it in, in uh, um, electronic technology, but in Philadelphia, life sciences, gene therapy, I mean, we're cutting edge. Uh, we've got to have a similar kind of attention to the public realm in order for, for us to attract talent, to attract dollars, to, to maintain kind of the engine of growth that is America. And we mentioned earlier, you know, in our current political climate, we are at a real apex of polarization. But on the podcast, we're also all about kind of ripple effects. And couldn't a bold approach at infrastructure and transportation as a side effect, maybe help our polarization from the standpoint that it gets easier for the cities and the rural areas, which is where our red-blue divide is really come from. That gets easier. Maybe people can take jobs working from home that because of strong broadband, they can work in a city but still live, you know, on a farm in the country. Like, it would seem to me there would be possibilities there to kind of break down these walls and kind of see that we're all, we all want to go in the same direction. I'm completely with you. And that's my worldview. And I believe that there's a bigger pie, not just, you know, everyone's grabbing for a piece of the single pie. But some of our politics is about fear and about sort of setting it up us versus them. And that's where the, that's where the, the work needs to be done, to, to be honest, for, for folks to then have the, the facility to embrace the vision that you just sketched, which to me is the right vision. Uh, and it's a different kind of politics. It's one that is, I won't say it's more kind of European and parliamentary because they've got their own kind of you know, camps as well. But it's, but but for me, politics should be about problem solving, not about personal destruction, for instance. So if Biden can help to kind of stimulate that and, and demonstrate it through the kind of projects and programs you're talking about that benefit everyone, you know, maybe we do have a, a moment where we can sort of pivot into a more kind of collegial, we, we can agree to disagree, but we also know that we have it within our power to, to kind of help the United States heal moment. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio in depth. You can listen and subscribe to the podcast on the radio.com app or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.